Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. Today, we have special guest, Jared Longshore. Jared is one of the pastors at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He also has a YouTube channel titled, originally enough, Jared Longshore, and we are honored to be speaking with him today. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. Thank you again for joining us for another episode. So we have Jared uh, Longshore with us, and I want to ask him right off the top, Jared, could you talk to us a little bit about your transition? You went from sort of a Baptistic framework, biblical understanding in that world, to a Pado understanding of the world and covenant and covenant renewal. How did that happen? Was this a book that you read? Was this a conference you attended? What began this work? This I, I, I want to say charitably, this good work in you. Yeah, that's funny. The way you've worded it is, was it was it a book or a conference? It, it wasn't a anything, you know. It was that that uh, people have asked me, what's the uh, you know what's the one argument? What's the one book? Well, you know, there's not one. And my my kind of journey is probably a little different than others um, in that we were there's a there was a big recovery of uh, covenant Baptist theology so uh, really recovering where the 17th century English Baptists were and I was uh, pretty involved in that recovery and um, as I kept poking around and kept reading kind of original covenant theological sources uh, it became clear to me that the position that I had come to hold was not was not right, and that dissipated on me, and basically bought into one covenant, two administrations, that covenantal approach. Let me ask you this: so, in that transition, I mean, everybody wants to talk about a detransition, right? That's sort of going around a lot. A lot of a lot of things are happening within the Christian world. I know this this was for us about two years ago that we transitioned ourselves from a kind of a Baptistic understanding of the of the word into a more Pado understanding, which is very different. Um, but as we read the Bible now, passages that we read before, they just, we, we read them differently. Uh, for instance, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, you know, even that we read with the lens, if you will, of this Baptist, of this Pado baptistic of, hey, this it is for us and for our children, for us and our household. Um, was there a was there a specific book at, at, at any point that kind of pushed you over the edge, or a talk, or or anything of that nature, or was it just so gradual you can't even point to it? Yeah. Um, well, I'd say this to give it like more context. So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and by the time I graduated college, was in like the Calvinistic Baptist world, and um, and at that time discovered the Second London Baptist Confession. If you're familiar with the 1689 Confession, now um, I went to Southern Seminary, and there was at least chatter about New Covenant theology at Southern Seminary. New Covenant theology is a pretty broad movement. Um, and I was from a from a the more reformed Baptist even, which I 
which I would distinguish between like a Reformed Baptist and a Calvinistic Baptist. Calvinistic Baptist believing in TULIP, uh, Calvinistic soteriology, Reformed Baptist being more of your Second London confessional types that are going to be thinking about covenant theology, the regulative principle, the continuity of the law, that kind of thing. So when I went to Southern, I was aware that I was I saw more continuity, especially on the law, but I didn't have everything um, worked out on the relationship between the covenant of grace and the various um, covenants we see in scripture, um, like the post-fall Adamic covenant, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic. I didn't, I didn't have all that sorted. So I, what I knew is that I held the John Calvin's third use of the law. What I knew is um, that I wasn't in this new covenant position that was kind of uh, in, in many circles denying the Sabbath, you know, because it's not found in the new. So I kind of had that framework going in, but um, it wasn't until I'm, I'm assuming it was about seven years ago that uh, that the 1689 federalism became a thing. It was I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's basically online. Um, there's a man named Sam Renahan who's done uh, really a marvelous work with a dissertation for, called From Shadow to Substance. It's a big, thick book. It's very hard to get. Um, but he did that across the pond somewhere. And I read that and it was very interesting to me um, on placing uh, what uh, what came to be called 1689 federalism, which is the kind of a Reformed Baptist covenantal understanding uh, of the covenants, placing that within the Reformed tradition going back to the 17th century. In what was going on with the Mosaic Covenant, um, some were calling the Mosaic Covenant a covenant of works. Others were calling it um, kind of a both a both and. You can see the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Others were calling it a, a third thing, like it's not the covenant of works republished and it's not the covenant of grace either. It's rather just this kind of Israelite conditional temporal physical covenant regarding the land of Canaan. And then uh, there were Reformed Baptists at their time who walked in there and tied that idea um, of, of Moses, Moses not being the covenant of grace or the covenant of works, but a tertium quid, you might say, uh, tying that into the Abrahamic covenant the, with the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, because Abraham's told to walk before me and be blameless. Uh, therefore, that's that's a covenant of works um, principle as well. That is not offering eternal life to Abraham as Moses, the Mosaic covenant was not offering eternal life to Moses. Uh, so, so the theory said, um, and you can find, I think John Flavel writes against this. You can find it in the PDF online way back in the day. Um, you have Nehemiah Cox being one of the key reformed Baptist guys. You have John Owen's take on the Mosaic covenant, of course, which is quite significant because he does seem to be a minority report. He doesn't seem to be kind of where the Pado reformed covenant theologians were. So you have a lot of interesting conversation going on back there. And I was I was in that world really exploring kind of primary sources. So when people say where to go, you can go to some of the modern sources. That's good. But I would encourage people to go back and like take a hard look at Nehemiah Cox. He's going to be your Reformed Baptist proponent. Um, take a hard look at John Ball. John Ball's covenant treatise on the covenant of grace. Uh, he was not at the Westminster Assembly, but was highly respected by those who went to the Westminster Assembly and wrote what I think is a very helpful traditional Pado covenantal book on the covenant of grace. That's really going to help people think about uh, this post-fall Adamic covenant being an administration of the covenant of grace all the way, all the way through. So um, that's kind of the maybe the deep end of the pool, or at least signaling the deep end of the pool. And what mm -hmm. happened, uh, I was basically viewing the 1689 position, which says the covenant of grace is revealed in the old and inaugurated in the blood of Jesus Christ. So you have the Old Testament saints being saved by grace through faith in Christ. 
um, but not being saved through the covenant of grace inaugurated. Um, some have said that these Old Testament saints were saved um, under, not by the uh, covenant of um, the covenant of grace. It was, or by, I'm sorry, under, not by the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And John Owen at least signals some of this language in his work on, in his Hebrews commentary, um, signals that kind of idea that Reformed Baptists, um, I think that they like generally enough, and um, and then kind of walk back into the Abrahamic covenant. So you get you get basically where the position I was holding was that the Abrahamic covenant was not an administration of the covenant of grace, which I believe is the kind of fundamental 1689 Reformed Baptist position. Um, but but at, while maintaining that the covenant of grace is uh, the, the grace of the covenant of grace, uh, Christ is still being communicated uh, well enough, although there's some uh, debate about the way in which he's being communicated uh, and what the confessions even mean by that. Is it merely revealed or is the communication some kind of communion, some kind of fellowship, mm-hmm. which seems to require that there be a covenant inaugurated back there in the Old Testament? So the reason that's, of course, important is because the Pato position of one covenant, two administrations uh, says, well, if the children receive the sign of the covenant in the old uh, via circumcision, we see that. Well, then it's one covenant with two varying administrations. Then they ought to receive. They, they are genuinely in the covenant um, of grace, the new covenant, just as they were in the old administration of the covenant of grace. So they are in the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace the weight of the paradigm, some would say. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the key thing. I, I became convinced of that structure of the covenants. It's one covenant, two administrations. And uh, yeah, that's a whirlwind because it is a hermeneutic. It is a worldview. It does cause you to start thinking. I mean, I was reading Owen recently who will talk of Cain being in the covenant of grace. Cain was in the visible church before his rebellion, before his being further exiled. Um, the same thing with Ishmael, you can find Calvin saying, unless we're going to say circumcision, unless we're going to do away with the sign of circumcision altogether. Well, Ishmael too was in the covenant of grace. He had the, he had the sign of the covenant, uh, upon him. Now he rebelled and proved himself to be, but a son of the flesh, but a child of the flesh. Um, but he was genuinely in the covenant of grace having received the sign. Well, that's a very different view of the covenant. And then you have, um, you have all sorts of implications, which I can go into if you'd like, or I can stop talking. <laughs> that was really good. That yeah, was really good. good. Yeah, no, you can give us some further implications <laughs> if you'd like. I like all the words. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of implications being your very definition of a covenant is there's a difference between the Reformed Baptist scheme and the and the Pado Baptist scheme. Um, for the Reformed Baptist, the covenant essentially becomes um the promise of new life or effectual calling and regeneration to be effectually called by God is when you think of the ordo salutis is equivalent to being in covenant. That's kind of what the ideas themselves mean. So to be in the new covenant means to be regenerate and to be regenerate is to be in the new covenant. And they would want to make distinctions between those two things, but they're, they're essentially one and the same. That's why you would never fall out of the covenant. So the very definition of the covenant is at play in the Pado Baptist scheme, um, you're going to hear some language of the Hebrew barith, meaning league, uh, this kind of idea of an administration being not. Um, when we talk administration, the idea of not being getting thing A to individual B, like I administer lotion to my daughter's knee, 
Mm-hmm. No, or rather we're talking about something more like the Washington and Jefferson administrations. Uh, you can be a member of the Washington administration or not. And that membership is clearly defined. It's an organized entity. Uh, it's a real thing in the world. And there are members or non-members of it. And there are certain privileges and responsibilities that come with being a part of that administration. That's the idea. That's the older idea when theologians were talking about administration that was included in it. Like um, that's what, and then you go, oh, okay. So you could be kind of a part of this people of God um, and actually be a covenant breaker, actually be a bad fish in the net of the kingdom as we hear in in the New Testament. You could be a covenant breaker as we hear in Romans 1. Um, so you have this concept of covenant is, is um, you, have, you have two different definitions going on there. And then you have the kingdom of God. Um, you can read Gerhardus Voss on the kingdom of God. He's uh, wonderfully helpful, but the Westminster Confession of Faith says that the visible church is the kingdom of God. And it says that the children of professors of the true religion are in, in the church and in the kingdom of God. Well, there's, there's no place for that um, that way of talking in the Reformed Baptist uh, scheme, you know, like that sounds like a high, high-handed transgression of what we hear in John three when Jesus says, "You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God," um, and therefore it seems that one would be left presuming um, regeneration and this kind of um, presumptive regeneration if you're going to claim what Westminster Confession of Faith actually claims. But what's going on there is two different definitions of the kingdom or two different ways of conceptualizing the kingdom that there is, um, you know, you have this, um, the visible church has a relationship to the kingdom of God, as indeed the invisible church also has a relationship to the kingdom of God. And Foss goes into all of that. So my point is you're dealing with different definitions of the covenant. You're dealing with different definitions of the kingdom. Um, Now, praise God, there's unity and you're not dealing with different definitions of kind of the fundamentals of of Jesus Christ. There's this wonderful unity that goes on, but different definitions of the church. um, Mm -hmm. If you're eating at the Lord's Supper with a particular Christian um, who you come to find out is unregenerate. If you if you had the ability to determine that he was unregenerate. Well, is that is such a man genuinely in the church with you? Um, The the. Baptist position is generally speaking going to say no he's not he's not he's clearly not in the covenant right that man is not in the covenant if you're not born again you're not in the covenant so he's not in the covenant well the the pedo scheme is going to say that he is in the covenant now he's not in the covenant internally but he's genuinely in the covenant externally and you have that kind of division um in the pedo baptist in much of the pedo baptist scheme but that causes you to kind of orient two people in a different way where you're starting to look at another man that's baptized in the triune name of God. And you're saying, well, he's my brother covenantally and I have duties and responsibilities to him. I have one another responsibilities to this man where the other um, paradigm in in this Baptist paradigm. Yes. uh, That still means something, but it doesn't mean as much as what the Pado paradigm is saying. And so you kind of have different um, approaches there. Uh, I think you have very different approaches when it comes to um, the church in the world. So kind of Christ and culture, and especially as our own society is evidencing the um, ineptitude of secularism. Mm -hmm. We're in a big, interesting conversation about mere Christendom. We're in an interesting conversation about the whole Christian nationalism stuff. We're in all of the the lordship of Christ over all things. And the pedo credo divide is 
is going to have some some different approaches on that as well. So those are some of the distinctions, and I don't I don't acknowledge those distinctions to say, hey, these these two worlds are worlds apart. It's all um, there's there's great unity, but there are some different emphases um, in each. Yes. Very good. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so you've kind of already hit on how that there's a few different things that have implications and that um, work out in different spheres. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the Kuiperian spheres of life and talk about how Christians should view and engage each of those? Yeah, Kuiper's, um, Kuiper's, I would commend Kuiper's pro reggae to, to uh, the people listening to the podcast. Uh, three volumes, and they're they're big. They're not small books, but they're um, it's really helpful to actually kind of get into what he's talking about. And so you do have the three spheres: the church, the state, and the family. And you um, you have different ministries going on each in each of those. The church, uh, the church's ministry of kind of word and sacrament, grace and peace. Think along those lines. You have the family with the ministry of health, welfare, education. You have the um, state with its responsibility, its ministry of the sword. And if we got that much down, uh, that would be quite helpful. Just seeing that there, there are these spheres and Jesus Christ is Lord over all these spheres. Um, I found some really interesting, it's kind of, again, it's at the deep end of the pool maybe, but there's some interesting language in Kuiper um, about um, the son of God being the one who rules. And he, he still wants to maintain that there's a distinction between the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdoms of this world. There is a distinction and that distinction ought to be maintained. Anybody that kind of muddles that distinction is going to be in a world of hurt. And you're really going to be trying to take the state and bring it under the church. Um, I think people that get Kuyperian sometimes get accused of that um, by people that are more pietistic, you know, or, or fall into pietism. It sounds like when you say Jesus is Lord of the state, that you, well, you're wanting to kind of take the state and bring it underneath um, the church. Well, no, these are distinct spheres that God himself has established. Um, and to have, you know, to have, have, say, the church beginning to get into that, um, to begin to try to take the ministry of the sword. Um, well, no, you're actually transgressing Romans 13, that God himself has instituted that civil authority. And the, the point that I want to emphasize, and that I see Kuiper emphasizing, is that, yeah, you're a minister of, of, of Yahweh. You're a minister of the triune God. And that's just a fundamental thing that I think American Christians, by and large, are are ready for like they. It's so basic um, that it's hard to deny. If you if you look at Romans thirteen, which was the text everybody cited through all the COVID nonsense, you know, obey the authorities, obey the authorities, obey the authorities. Great, but who do they have to obey? <laughs> right. I mean, it's that's also in Romans thirteen. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's not only implied; it's just clearly stated because they are serpents of Yahweh. And if you are a servant, servants must obey their masters. You have to do what Yahweh says. Now we can get into the debates about what God has told them to do, but we, no one can deny that God has, they have to obey God. And then when it's so flagrant that they're disobeying God, well, okay, 
Now we now we know we must obey God rather than man. We're not going. We're we're not secularist. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vox Populi Vox Day is a bad idea. The voice of the people indeed is not the voice of God. So um, I yes, Kuiper's Kuiper's going to get into that as you just basically say. Okay, there are these spheres that exist in the world. There's these various ministries that exist in the world, and there is a God uh, who is ruling over all of these all of these spheres, and He must be. Um, he must be acknowledged and what he, and then you get into revelation as a, this is important because you have general and special revelation and uh, it's all God's revelation. And it, it must be heated by the various authorities that God establishes in these spheres. So fathers and mothers are authorities in the family sphere and they are under the authority of God and they must pay attention to what God has said. Um, so if, if, if um, there was a father or mother says, yes, um, and because we're not Christians, we're merely going to pay attention to general revelation, uh, to what the sun and the moon and the stars can tell us about this God and how we are to conduct ourselves in the home. Well, that's fundamentally insufficient. You, you're, you, you do need to do that and praise God that he speaks to us, uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. And you can you can learn a lot by paying attention to what God has revealed through nature. Um, my goodness, if we paid, you know, if we gave more than 30 seconds to paying attention to what God has revealed through nature, we wouldn't be doing all of the wicked, abominable things that we're doing right now, which are contrary to nature. So I, I don't want to diminish um, what God has revealed through nature as it pertains to these various three spheres. With that said, we have a book. God has God has spoken by the prophets and the apostles, and that is not limited uh, to your personal justification. The, the The fact that God spoke by the prophets and the apostles was not merely, well, I'll speak. You know, God didn't say, well, I'll speak through creation as it pertains to man conducting himself in the world um, with wisdom. And then when I'll get people saved, justified primarily in the Ordo Salutis, I'll get people justified by writing through the prophets and the apostles. It's like, no, uh, he wrote through the prophets and the apostles. Indeed, God spoke uh, and there's gospel there for us. And we are to hear that good news and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and by faith, we are saved and justified. Um, But what God has revealed through the prophets and the apostles uh, pertains to all of life. Mm-hmm. It pertains to everything. And there's this weird reductionism that goes on uh, in some parts of the church today where people will say, yeah, but, you know, it won't tell you how to change a tire. Um, and, you know, it's like, well, it actually does tell you how to change a tire. It, it doesn't tell you particular responsibilities pertaining to tire changing, like how to remove a lug nut. But it does say that you need to do it in patience and kindness and does you need to do it in love to the to the one to whom the tire in the vehicle belongs. And you need to do it uh, honoring the authorities at your tire shop. You know, like the it's all it's all going there to that particular task. And in this sense, this I think this is what Kuiper's saying generally enough by uh, saying uh, there, there's not a single square inch over which Christ does not cry mine. And so this is a, um, this is a significant way of thinking that is being recovered um, in many places in American evangelicalism of how, how we're to live under the Lordship of Christ. Mm-hmm. 
So it's not really saying, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so I'll have nothing to do with the political world. It's saying I'm going to enter into the political world or the governmental sphere as a Christian, and I'm going to bring what it means to be a Christian into that sphere or this sphere, whatever it may be. Yeah, there's definitely that dimension. Um, I'm going to go involve myself in the in the political world and I'm going to do it as a Christian and I'm going to bring Christian stuff there. All that's true. And what I want to say is um, even if you didn't go in that sphere, you listener, you know, I, what I'm saying is uh, the Christianity is already in that sphere. <laughs> Christ is already Lord over that sphere. He's Lord of that sphere, whether you go there or not, or whether you engage politically or not. Um, you know, you, you ought to be concerned with the, with the political world um, and all of that. That's not, you know, but regardless of if you die and did nothing, you're not the one who's ushering that in. It's just, this is what God has done. He's baked this into the world. This is the world that he has created to whom does, uh, who does Gavin Newsom serve? The answer is the triune God. What if, what if no Christians are under his jurisdiction? Who does he serve? He serves the triune God. What if no Christians ever reminded him that, you know, we don't create it. We're not the ones who are doing it. This is just the world that God has made. And this is an actual position of authority that God has established. What Christians need to do is remind, remind um, the, these people that this is the God that they serve. And, um, and we need to avoid a little bit of the spirit of the demos. Like we, we, yes, we need to remind them. Um, we are your constituents and your constituents are still by and large Christians around here. I I think 60% of America is baptized, maybe something like that. So yes, you still have, you know, we were the evangelical voting block. And if you would like to be elected the next term, then you need to listen to our voices. Well, I think all that's fine. Yeah. Um, and good. But it's it's still speaking their language. It's speaking the spirit of Vox Populi, Vox Day, uh, you know, and you end up with these kind of pragmatic politicians who if you get enough and then you got a whole world of trying to get people to turn out, you know, and all that kind of stuff, which is, again, all of that's good. But we have to I'm wanting to reach at something deeper in the Christian mind and heart I'm in it that will not that is not contrary to anything that I just said um, necessarily. I'm saying you're telling them of something that is true. Mm-hmm. You're telling them something that's true. Yeah. yeah. And whether you get away with your wickedness and you get elected by these radical leftists that hate God and hate everyone created in his image, um, whether you get away or not, I'm just telling you that you serve this God. That yeah. is the very station in which you find yourself. And it yeah. could never be otherwise. God yes. has appointed you in the position that you find yourself not merely by his providence. You're not merely like, well, the guy that goes and eats an orange off an orange tree finds himself doing so by God's providence. Well, yeah, we all do that. But your situation is far more significant. You're in a position, you're on a throne in the sphere and you've been put on that throne. God is the one who created the throne. God is the one who took you and put you on that throne. And God is the one who tells you what to do on that throne. Um, and you need to pay attention to what that God has said. We just need to send that message um, far and wide to our civil authorities. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Then it couple that with your understanding, your view on Christian nationalism. For some Christians, Christian nationalism is a bad term, bad word. 
people are, oh, you're a Christian nationalist. How dare you? But what is your take on Christian nationalism? I suppose really coupled with what you just said regarding the Kuyperian viewpoint. Um, and how should that play out in the individual lives of Christians as they think about that? As MSNBC talks about their new atheism nonsense and we need to you know, dismantle this Christian nationalism talk, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, I find the conversation of the Christian nationalism thing just fascinating. Um, it's it's really really fascinating, <laughs> yeah. and it, it's a fascinating moment. And uh, you know, I'm not I don't have a Christian nationalist you know flag or song. So I figured I, I figured you didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's not my thing. But I am having fun with it. I'm having fun with the with the destruction of the secular mind and the secular state. Like we're just. It's really fun to say when MSNBC is saying all these Christian nationalists, uh, we just chuckle and say, look, um, there is always a God of the system. And that's being proven to be true all over the place. So your secularism is dying and that's good. And um, not only is there always a God of the system, but like God, the triune God truly is the God of the system. And anything else is idolatry. So you basically you will have you will have a nation that is rightly and properly ordered according to the design of the God who is, or you will have a nation that is disordered uh, according to their idolatry uh, as they worship the God who is not truly God, the God who is not ultimate. Those are your two options. And secularism is just um, a lie. Secularism is pretending that you're not worshiping the idol and trying to order your society based off of the idol. And it's fun to pull that all back and say, you understand, it is, it is, the Christian God is the only God who is, he is, uh, he is um, God of gods, Lord of lords, all of that. So um, your, your nation must be ordered um, according to the revelation of that God, according to the, the truth of that God. Or it will just be, um, it's just a disordered, rebellious nation, a disordered, rebellious state. Um, so I think I, I'm I'm watching, and I'm sure there's going to need to be some corrections <laughs> to those who want to jump in this kind of Christian nationalist thing and have the wrong kind of um, impulses and misunderstandings of what is really being addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my sense is we're not we're not there yet and that those those corrections do need to come but you can just keep pointing to all of the millions and millions of babies that are being slaughtered um as a blood sacrifice to a false god and all of i mean the insanity that we've done with the burgerfell and all of the downstream consequences the, the um you know not only the disillusion of the family but we're at the point now post to Bergefell where uh, legally speaking, as it, it continues to work itself out, um, we're dealing with the dissolution of the very category of husband, the very category of wife. Um, if a man has the constitutional right to marry another man, well, then you don't need uh, then a wife is not um, an essential ingredient in a marriage anymore. It's not it's not um, a part of the very legal definition of marriage anymore. And therefore, um, you take away the very nature of mother, according to the scheme. Well, now there's no such thing as a mother. 
you're seeing that all of this is this crazy paganism that's run amok. So to come into that and say, hey, hey, we we need to turn back to God and we need to tell the authorities to kiss the sun lest you perish in the way. Um, that seems um, eminently reasonable. It seems basic and fundamental. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of Christians who want that kind of thing and um, want to pursue it because they can see what what this um, this crazy separation of the sacred and the secular has done. Yeah. You're dealing with a lot of people that I think that are conservatives, they're evangelical, they're older, and um, they don't understand. They, they don't understand why the society has gone the way it has. And they didn't they didn't realize that the society that they used to live in um, was the fruit of actual doctrinal Christian commitments. Um, and so we're now we're now suffering that fruit and we certainly need to um, return to the foundations. That's good. That's good. Let's end on this question. We got about a minute left, but I want to plug your book, Wisdom for Kings and Queens. How does what does it mean for Christians to be kings and queens? If you could, if you yeah. could tell us in thirty-five seconds. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, well, we are a we are a kingdom of priests, and God has put us in this position. Um, we are to exercise dominion. That was the command from the very beginning in our father, Adam. He fell and we fell in him and we can't rule anything now without the second Adam. The second Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. He lived, died and rose again. He sits on his throne and he strengthens us from on high to actually fulfill that original cultural mandate, the dominion mandate. We do it by grace through faith in Christ. I wrote a book on Proverbs that uh, is aimed to help you do just that. That's wonderful. Well, Jared, it is a sincere pleasure and privilege to have you on today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.